expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. We're here once again. It's episode 107 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where I have to say, I think we were a little disappointed that the HBO show Vinyl was not about pop figures. Yeah, I mean, you know, it'd be great to see that, like how they're made and, you know, which ones are have, you know, part of the best collections. And, you know, it's very, very depressing. You know, we I had mean, our hopes up for it. You had an opportunity. I mean, they're already instant classics. And yet you went with music. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had Billy Zane's Phantom, which is finally on Netflix, and I looked at my Phantom Pop, and I'm like, you know, I want to watch vinyl, and I watched the Phantom instead, and I'll tell you, goddamn, is that a, uh, that, that is, you want to talk about guilty pleasures? Oh my god, is that a guilty pleasure of a movie? And I mean, you can't even tell me, I mean, come on, don't tell me you don't like the movie, people, come on. And when else were you going to get a Phantom movie, you know? It's the Zane train, man. You can't stop the Zane train. You can't stop the Zane train. You just hop aboard the Zane train and ride. I'm hey. James Witham alongside. <laughs> Choo-choo, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Merkle one arm Nick Pataglia. Man, last week, biggest show I think we've ever done, and it was really, really fun. We, of course, had the, the cast and crew from Wynonna Earp from Sci-Fi and IDW mixing together the comics world and TV world. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. I mean, just talking about Winona Earp with basically all the big principal players that are involved and then watching the show on Friday night. As a matter of fact, we're going to give a review of the show coming up this week in Geek Tame a little bit later on in the show. But just, you know, we had a lot of fun with them. And I mean, if you guys thought the interview was funny, you should have heard some of the off mic stuff because uh, that was really funny. It was just it's just nice to see those personalities that Emily and Bo and Melanie have and they're transferred onto the screen and the way that Emily writes the show is amazing. We'll get into that a little bit later on. And of course, Bo getting his creation brought to life and when you asked him Nick about actually being able to help direct one of the episodes of the show as somebody who creates a show to see your baby be given birth to on the screen that's got to be a hell of a feeling, man. Well, yeah, I remember Rhino Earp's been around for 20 years, and we'll get more into it in our review of the show. But yeah, to see something like that come to life and the way they did it, and we'll get so we'll talk more about it in our review. But it is, has to be a, a proud, proud moment for any combo creator, any writer to see something that you put on a page and in and, and color and in drawings and everything else and just come to life literally on screen. It's a huge, huge achievement. Absolutely, and we're going to have another thing come to life. We've got a little bit of an interesting, I don't know if I want to call it folklore or uh, old pop culture or something like mystery. that. Mystery. Oh, there you go, mystery. There's the word I was looking for, and we're going to be talking about a comic based off of a mystery this week. Exactly. We have Peter J. Tomasi on this week to talk about his new series from Dark Horse, House of Penance, which pretty much covers the Winchester Mystery House. I mean, you definitely want to look up, go ahead and Google Winchester House, and there's a whole bunch of info on Wikipedia and stuff like that, but it's basically a house out in California that was built by a woman who was part of the Winchester family. Yes, Winchester as in guns, and the house was just funky. There was all kinds of stairs leading to nowhere, stuff like that, and she was a very, let's say, eccentric lady, and we're going to talk all about the Winchester House mystery, and of course House of Penance is a comic based on that, and the construction of the house, and the Lady Winchester, if you will, and 
Gotta tell you, Peter J. Tomasi, really into this, so it's gonna be nice to get some insight in him, and, and, and I understand he really has some inside info on the Winchester House. Exactly, and speaking of comics, James, that's, and folks, that's gonna do it for our intro, but come next! We have two new comics to review this week, we're heading back to our Marvel and DC roots here on Down Nerdy Podcast. My name is Bo Smith, I'm the creator of Wine Owner Earth, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time. We pull our long boxes and our vibranium shields, and we discuss reading this week. As always, this segment is brought to you by the fine folks over at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragorn Boulevard, Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great things he has for nerds that you love. And, hey, really quick, we're going to be doing a live show on free comic book day next month at Fantasy Escape. So come out, see us, and, uh, yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun there. But... I'm going to go first this week, James, and, you know, there was a number one that came out this week from Marvel, and I really have to get this off my chest. Okay, I'm going to give the floor to you, sir. Okay, so I did Black Panther number one this week. Now, before I dive into who did it and what I thought about the book, here's here's my problem when it comes to the comics, and mostly when it comes to the pricing. I understand that a lot of number ones, it's people want to give them, like, Make them five bucks. This book was five dollars. Now, here's my problem. The book is only like thirty some odd pages, so it's like a it's a regular sized book. It's not a double issue or anything. But if you're gonna make a book at any point five dollars, I'm sorry, you have to give them a lot of content. You have to give the reader a lot of content. And Marvel didn't do that. They just gave you the first issue that was it. It wasn't like, hey, in the back issue we have like an extra comic that you can get, like a vit, like for example, one of the Spider-Man books I have. On the back of it, it has you know Vision number one attached to it, and it was more expensive that I paid for the book, but it was a double issue. If you're gonna make a book five dollars, this just goes to Marvel, this goes to any publisher out there. You have to make it over thirty pages. You have to give the reader a double issue because what happens is you look at at DC, for example, yes, their number ones are $5 as well, and yes, they're the same length. However, not every number one issue was $5. There was one that was 4 and stuff like that, one that was like, and there was one that was like $3. And given what you know, I, I got, um, I'm very disappointed. And honestly, I was like, oh, Black Panther is $5. Let me see if Poe Dameron number one is 5 and there's all, like, all Marvel's number ones are $5. And I'm like, and they're all the same lengths. And I'm like, come on, guys, what are you doing? Yeah, I'll be honest. I was actually, we were talking about this off the air. I was actually going to get Poe Dameron number one. I saw it was 5 bucks, and I went, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to spend 5 bucks on it. Because, I mean, it could suck, you know? And that's one thing. That's one of the reasons we do these reviews. We don't want you to buy bad books. And we're not saying Black Panther's a bad book, because you're going to get into that in a minute. But there's other examples. Like, I remember uh, DC came out with a, I think it was a $7, $8 book or something for uh, Legends of Tomorrow recently. But it was a huge, oversized issue. Right. And there were, like, four stories in there. So you're kind of like, okay, six, seven bucks is pretty steep, but at least I'm getting a lot of different stories and it's an oversized issue, almost like a trade. So I can kind of justify that. But yeah, four ninety nine for a regular size. I mean, five, nine, five bucks for a regular sized issue. Yikes. Yeah. So without further ado, I'm going to dive into Black Panther number one. Now, of course it was written by Ta-Nehisi Coates and the arts done by Brian Stelfreeze. And I'll say this, 
yes, it's $5. But the storyline and the arc they're going with is pretty interesting. They're going with the fall of Wakanda. And pretty much uh, Black Panther, uh, T'Challa, has been abandoned by his father. So now he's called the Orphan King. And without going too far deep into the story, because, again, if you want to read it, you're going to read it. Pretty much this deals with a lot of people in Wakanda going against Black Panther and going against the royalty. is pretty much an uprising. And now I'll say this. The art by Stella Freeze is amazing. It's really, really good art. However, there is a problem in this book. And the problem is two things. The antagonist in this book, I feel, is pretty weak. I'm not going to go into who it is because I don't want to spoil yeah, it. Yeah, definitely don't spoil that. But the thing is this person doesn't get a lot of panel time and this person for what this person is doing in this book I'll say and what this person is doing this person also comes off as very inexperienced in like their powers and what they're doing and you know there's a part where they can't get kind of confirmation of like you know I don't know if I can do this kind of a thing and the problem with this with this book is that, and this is my second part, is that it really does read like a zero issue. So pretty much, I paid $5 for a zero issue. Yeah, that's got to sting. I mean, even though you know it's a number one issue, and there's going to be some of those elements there, especially if there was no zero issue, doesn't it kind of make you feel like there should have been a maybe lesser expensive zero issue to kind of lead into this, and then jump the price up after that? Right. Well, exactly, because number two actually is going to deal with the f- actual fall of Wakanda. This pretty much sets up the uprising and kind of what the causes of this and people turning against um, T'Challa and the whole royalty aspect of this, uh, of the series and of the character. And the thing was, when I got to the end of the book, I had to do double takes. I'm like, wait a minute, did I just get to the end of the book? Because the where it ends, the ending, kind of a cliffhanger, kind of big reveal isn't really one where I'm like, wow, it's just like, it felt like something you could, you would read mid comic. And I'm like, wait, this isn't the ending. Is this, is it, this isn't really where they're going to end it. Is it? And it is. And I'm like, oh man, like if this was built as a zero issue, uh, I think maybe this would have been a pickup or maybe a light pole, some, something like that. I'm not sure, uh, how I would classify this, but you know, my overall take is this, is that the story, the, the overline, what they're covering with the whole arc is very intriguing. It's the fall of Wakanda, and it's very, very intriguing. Uh, the writing by Coach is really good uh, because, like I said, it's, it's something I don't think we really saw before. And anytime you deal with the uprising, given and given our current political situation here in America, uh, where people want like rapid change, it's pretty kind of cool to see that linear relationship between you know, fiction and nonfiction comes into play. And we see a very conflicted uh, T'Challa here. He's very conflicted in this. He's like, the people don't believe in me anymore. And it's really interesting. We've seen him, we see him act in a way we never really get to see him before. So I did like that. But again, this reads like a zero issue. It's $5. And I, the ending wasn't really all that great. The antagonist, I fear the antagonist is going to be very weak going forward because I didn't get a whole lot of it, a whole lot of the antagonists in this first issue. Uh, at least something that made me feel like, okay, this person is a threat to be dealt with. This is more somebody who's kind of maybe, in a sense, you see this person, but you, they're more going to be more likely in the shadows controlling things like a puppet master. Right. 
this is a very cautious pickup for me. I'm not going to give this three issues. I'm giving this to issue two to to make to grab me. And issue two, I'm saying that because that's supposed to be when the actual fall of Wakanda happens. So for me, uh, I'm I'm upset with how much I had to pay for this book. Uh, it doesn't justify it. And the art is great by Style Freeze again. The art is great, but what I'm given outside of the main arc and in terms of story and everything else, uh, it didn't warrant the $5. It's not a pull. Again, it's a pickup that I would give two issues to. Yeah, well, when you're talking about $5 for a book, I could see you not wanting to go three issues for that just in case. Well, and I didn't want to give this a drop because, I, again, I like the fact that they're doing this whole Fall of Wakanda arc, and it's pretty interesting. So I didn't hate the book. I just, just felt it was... just not sure you get your money's worth. Yeah, it was just very underwhelming, I'll say, for a first issue. But it's your turn, sir, so go ahead. Alrighty, well, I decided to go back to my DC roots as you went back to your Marvel roots this week. And I decided to go with Justice League Dark Side War Special... Number one, of course, written by the great Jeff Johns. Art, definitely by committee. We've got Ivan Reese, we've got Joe Pardo, we've got Oscar Jimenez, and Paul Pelletier, and also Tony Cordos. All the artists done this book. Also, colors by Alex Sinclair, and Rob Lee did the letters. Now, I will say, even though there was, uh, it takes a village to draw this book, you don't really get the sense of that. I mean, you saw the art's pretty consistent throughout. So when I saw all those names, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Every page is going to look different. It really didn't. No, it didn't. And I read this book as well. And no, it all was consistent. And that's what that's what I liked about the book is that the art was very consistent through and through. And uh, again, just, it was just a great, great job art-wise. Yeah, definitely. You get two stories in this book, as a matter of fact, which I kind of didn't expect. You get the story of Jessica Cruz, and you also get the story of... Of Grail, who I just love. She's a great character. We actually get to go through her childhood in this book with, you know, from being born with Marina and her trying to keep her safe her entire life and how she kind of tries to learn to balance between being Darkseid's daughter and actually being an Amazon and growing up as a child and how basically they try to kill her. I mean, that that's not a spoiler because if you've been reading Justice League, you know that they would have killed her on the spot had they known about her because it's Darkseid's daughter. So we go through that. First of all, and as we're going through that, they don't really separate the two stories, which I thought was kind of interesting. You also have Jessica Cruz, who, again, if you've been reading Justice League, she gets sucked into the power ring, and she's kind of trying to find her way out by going to the actual source. But I want to get back to Grail for a second. I gotta tell you, man, when they created this character, I was hooked from the beginning, first time I saw her when I reviewed that Justice League book weeks ago. The more and more I see her... And get her story, and it doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with her being the daughter of Darkseid, and the uh, and an and an Amazon. It's just she's an intriguing and very interesting character. Well, exactly, and, and I texted you this the other night. I said I really want Grail to get her own book. Like literally from when she was a baby, there was a scene. I can say what it is. She does something as a baby where I was like. Holy shit! Yeah, as a baby, then as a child, then as a teenager, and so on and so and, forth. And what I loved about this, too, was they also, with Grail's storyline, drew parallels between her and Diana, like, and Diana yeah. Prince. They How they're both born at the same time, pretty much same day, kind of everything, and how they're, they're pretty much intertwined in that, that connection, that bond that they have. Yeah, and the pages parallel that, too, by the way, if you haven't read this book yet, so it's very, very interesting the way they parallel that, but then when you jump to present time, she basically wants to get revenge on 
everybody. I'm not oh, going to yeah. spoil any of it. Well, obviously her dad. You know that part. But I mean everybody. And one of the things that catches me in this book is who she captures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a ceremony that she's doing. Who she captures is definitely going to draw one of those, I guess, directions of her revenge in for sure. And something happens to this person at the end of the book that makes you go, oh, my God, what did she do? Exactly. Now, I'll say this. I know it's a Justice League book, so of course you're getting more than just the the grail aspect of it. So we got, the horse, of course, the Jessica Cruz aspect. I felt that Jessica Cruz was kind of maybe misplaced a little bit. I understand what you're saying. I just think they wanted to throw in another story because it's Justice League special. And I think the fact that we both think grail is such a great character that you throw it in. And I actually do like Jessica Cruz. And I like the fact that she's going to be sticking around right. uh, coming up in rebirth. I do kind of like what they did though with the, I don't like how they broke it up. If they had made it to like grail story here. And then like they did with just with uh suicide, suicide squad, squad most wanted. Yeah. If they ended one story and picked up the other, I would have been fine with that. I, I'm not sure. I like how they intertwined it, but I did like both stories because when she's inside the ring, she actually encounters everyone that has ever held this power ring. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and it, it was just like how you know it, they're. It's pretty much like the way her trying out this ring is pretty much okay. If you've seen Toy Story, and the fact that like Buzz yeah. gets picked by the claw, and Woody's grabbing Buzz, and all the aliens are grabbing Woody because they're like he's been chosen, you have to let him go. That's what they do with Jessica Cruz, where she's trying to get out, and these lanterns are like. You must stay here. You have been chosen. Like you must stay. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and there's a reason they want her to stay, which I will not spoil because that's part of the right. part of the story. So I won't spoil that. And again, but to wrap this up really quickly, uh, there's another cliffhanger. So you kind of get a double cliffhanger in this book where she finds what she thinks is the power source for the ring, which is going to help get her out. But instead, she finds something else, which yeah. I just can't. And it's like, hold, wait a minute, how did that just happen? And all kinds of other stuff. So, again, this is kind of a one-shot. The art, very consistent, although you have a ton of artists in here. It was very consistent. The writing by Johns, I mean, what else can you expect from Jeff Johns at this point, especially writing a Justice League title? And to do such a great job with two new female characters that were created i'd like to point that out strongly since we've talked about that on the show a million times i think you did a great job so just to tie things up in a nice little bow go buy this book can't be a pull because it's one shot so go buy this book this is a buy would be a pull if it was an ongoing series for me exactly one thing i really want to quickly say is that you know like i said i didn't think just, i did not think the jessica cruz thing was bad i thought it was pretty good it just felt like the way like you said the way they put it together the where it was all like intertwined and stuff uh, I felt that it was very uh, – it felt like it didn't belong there. If it was split up, it would have been a lot better. But overall, yeah, the book yeah. was great. It was just a poor layout. That's all. That's, that's all it was. The stories by themselves were great. I just didn't like the way it was laid out. Exactly. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But come up next, well, we talked about the series premiere of Vinyl on Earth. We actually had the folks from it on last week. Well, the show premiered this past Friday, and we're going to talk about it. Our review – of the series premiere of Violent Earp is coming next right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Melanie Scrifano. I play Winona Earp, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, I think we should start off this week in Geek Tame Up by wishing a happy 27th birthday to Winona Earp, legacy of the Earp family. 
or not. Yeah, 27 is kind of a shitty, <laughs> shitty age to be if you're a member of the Earp family because pretty much as the show went on Earp on Sci-Fi told us on Friday night that, hey, when an Earp turns 27, that's when all the demons of and the people that Wide Earp killed come back and come after you. And, yeah, that sucks. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible gift. Other than, I think, you know, being surprised told you're adopted. Yeah, that would be a, a pretty big surprise. But, I mean, I think having revenants chasing after you might be a little bit worse. <laughs> yeah. Unless you don't end up in a loving family. But, uh, no, we're talking about Wine on Herb from Sci-Fi, of course, 10 o'clock on Friday night. You know, you're going to be able to catch episode two this week, as a matter of fact. But we're going to talk about episode one and the pilot episode. And, you know, after talking to the cast and crew last week, man, did they deliver on yeah. this pilot. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I got to start right now. Melanie Scafano just... Her portrayal of Winona Earp, and you know, I, I said this after the show. I said Winona Earp is in, a, in an age where westerns are dying. Pretty much, there's not a lot of western stuff out there. It's literally shot in the arm that the genre needed, and you have that rich history with the Earp family. You got Melanie Scafano just delivering. I mean, every line she yeah. said, I was laughing, and I'm like, wow, this is a strong female character that you just don't want to cross. And, you know, there's certain scenes where she's doing things and you come find out like, oh, she's interrogating somebody. Yeah. But, but I love how they play that where she does something else to not make it like, OK, it's just a regular interrogation scene. Oh, she becomes playful and very intimidating and mm-hmm. just it's very fun. And the way that the dimensions of that character, the way Bo Smith wrote her in the comic, it's just it is a dead-on balls adaptation from comic to screen, and it was just an amazing job. It really is. I mean, like I'd said before, she's a smart ass, she's a wise ass, but she's a badass, and she delivers all of that stuff on the screen. Plus, you know what? She's like that right kind of crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like she's right on the verge of crazy, but not quite there, and she's self-deprecating, which I love, and also... It's not just funny either. She brings that torture of what happened to oh, her yeah. family when she was younger. You actually feel that she's tortured inside. And, you know, she wants to bail again, but you know, she knows she can't bail on her sister and her family, and she's blaming herself for stuff that happened in the past. So she brings the humor, but she also brings that extra element. It's really hard to do to switch gears like that, and it didn't feel forced. That was the other thing that I loved. It's not like they were trying to force a serious angle on a show, or they weren't trying to force the humor. Everything went in line exactly the way it was supposed to and it built up to like you said with emily's writing almost a perfectly written pilot oh yeah and i think that when you look at you know, i want to talk about emily's writing is what made her writing work was that again it had the nice elements of comedy but she knew what to reel back and yeah. be like okay we are in this world of purgatory we're in this town purgatory where a lot of bad stuff happens you know these people you know, these revenants coming after my own herb she knows when she knew when to reel it back and not make it much of a caricature or, or a caricature at all. And that's smart. You know, that's that's really, really smart to do, especially with something that deals with revenants and demons and stuff like that. Again, the the writing was great, and I think they really captured Bo Smith's ver- vision of Winona Herb. And just the progression. And the thing was too is you felt the connection between Winona and her sister. And there are a lot of really cool moments like the moment where she like bounces a bullet and saves her sister from being yep. hung and 
you know, it's really, really cool. So I like the way they did it. I love the way they progressed it. I got to tell you, too, well, you're, you're talking about a caricature and how it would be easy to do that. I actually felt that way with uh, Doc Holliday's character, of course, played by Tim Rosen. That is one character that is so easy to all of a sudden morph into a caricature of in an adaptation of a show or even a movie because he's he's just got that flair about him, you know what I mean? So I thought that Timothy, Tim Rosen's portrayal of Doc Holliday was really awesome, and as a matter of fact, the way it was written to where... You're, you're kind of wondering, is he playing both sides? Is he not playing both sides? What's really going on with him? And they gave him a little bit of an edge, which you've never really seen a Doc Holiday with that little bit of an edge. You know what I mean? Well, remember what, remember what Emily said last week on the show? She said, Doc, you know, we, we, you know, it's nice to surround with these characters like Doc where you're like, we know you've done some shady stuff, so we're not totally, we don't know where you stand, and especially with the ending and, and, and stuff like yeah. that. You know, and it's really, really awesome. You know, and it, it's that nice sense of mystery. You know, you it's nice to have a character in any show where you don't really question their motives, but you question, okay, where does their where do their loyalties lie? You know, and and it's nice having that that moment of gray or that cloud of gray in this whole fold. It's really nice how they did it. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like that Harrison Wells esque vibe where you kind of wonder, okay. Are these pure motives? Are they not? I mean, which side is he really on? Because you always had that wonder about Harrison Wells on The Flash where, okay, where is he going? Until we had that big reveal where he was reverse Flash and we got that whole reveal. And maybe we get that with Doc Holliday on one side or the other at some point later on this season or we don't. But it was definitely, yeah, it, it adds that little bit of mystery. So you're going to have the, okay, every week we'll probably have different revenants that we're going to tangle with from from White Herb's past. But at the same time, you have that lingering, okay, where is Doc Holliday? Where is he? Is he is on one side or is the other? Because they're definitely painting the picture of mystery. Exactly. And, you know, something we haven't talked about yet in this show is, of course, you know, Asian dolls. And, and the, the kind of, you know, again, you want to talk about capturing the chemistry? You know, the, the the conversations that Dolls had with Winona and the, the back and forth, and you saw how yeah, Dolls is the straight man. He's like, we gotta do it by the book, and this is this is the way we gotta do it. Winona's very you know off the cuff, and you know again, shoot first, ask questions later, and you know again, it's it's really really cool. You know, it's really cool to see the interactions and the chemistry. You know, w- was really really great between them. Yeah, and this is a zero year adaptation for Winona Earp too, so we get to see you know the beginnings of Agent Dolls, the beginnings of Winona Earp and their relationship as it starts, not where it's fresh. And you know, of course, we do see spoiler alert at the end. Of course, it's a spoiler filled review at the end where she does get the badge, and so now she's part of the Black Badge Division, yep. and Dolls is going to help her hunt down these. Revenants and maybe some more stuff as it goes because remember from the comics she's hunted down a lot of weird stuff so one of the things I love about this show is you can already as a reader if you've been a fan of the comics look forward to okay they're telling this story but guess what later on down the line there's so many more stories that they can tell so it's exciting and like you said the humor was on point didn't feel forced at all and the way she kind of had that uh, it's Doc Doc Holiday, yeah. dumbass kind yeah. of stuff. I like that she, that that she had that kind of a humor as well. Now the only the only drawback I had in the show was, and I think this was more of it was the first show, so it's kind of just maybe finding footing and and just getting you know in 
braced in, in within the script. And uh, Shamir Anderson as Agent Dollars, he felt a little bit wooden to me. But I think as the show progressed, I think we kind of even saw as the episode progressed, I think he felt a little bit more comfortable in his role and kind of progressed as the show went on. Right, I agree with that. And like you said, I think he did a good job. But I do think it was a little tad bit wooden in places. But I'm wondering if that was a purposeful right. move. I think that maybe uh, we find out that she draws him out. Right. And like you said, as as the show went on, you kind of saw that. The more interactions they had, the more that uh, she kind of drew him out, especially that scene where they're both at her house and they're talking and she's like, I couldn't hit a uh, a, a deputy at point blank range, lucky for you kind of thing. And their interaction in that scene together, I think slowly but surely was drawing him out. So it's very possible, like you said, that that was a, a purposeful move on their part. I think it's time to give our ratings. I'll have you go first. Alrighty, I think I'm going to give this nine misfiring peacemakers out of ten. <laughs> Aim was a little off in the beginning there. Okay. So why Nona? Well, James, I think I said all I could as well about the series premiere of I Don't Earp again. It airs on Sci-Fi Friday nights at 10 p.m. I'm giving this 10 out of 10 newspaper clippings on the wall. They're hot creepily. There's no uncreepy way to do that. Like we're there saying is. on Twitter, there's just there's no uncreepy way to do that. And that's going to do it for our series premiere review of Winona Earp. Again, it airs on Sci-Fi's Friday nights at 10. But coming up next, we have a plethora of nerd news. We're going to talk about The Walking Dead and kind of how fans are a little bit pissed off. We'll talk about why that is. Come up next, nerd news here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Emily Andrews. I'm the showrunner and executive producer of Winona Earp TV series. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time to get our baseball bats and our little tins of nerd rage because it's time for what, James? Nerd, nerd news! And I want to start off by saying before we dive into this first story, I mean, it's been almost a week, but still, we got to say it. Spoiler warning, this is going to contain spoilers for the comic as well as this, the show, the season finale of season six of The Walking Dead. And the reason why, and I know we don't talk about The Walking Dead a lot, but there was just so much controversy surrounding the way that they ended ended it. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, or need, just need a quick refresher, season six, the ending was supposed to be the introduction of Negan, Jeffrey Dean Morgan playing Negan. And, of course, for a while we were getting built up with – from the writers and people on the show – oh my god, this is going to be the best season finale ever, this is going to destroy the fans, you know, emotionally, and just so much build-up to it. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? We get Negan, we see Lucille, he swings the bat, but we don't see who dies, and it ends on that cliffhanger, thus causing the internet to rage. And you know what? I think if they didn't come out and say all of those things about how it's going to be the greatest finale ever and how it's going to destroy, like, all that stuff that you said. If they hadn't have done that, they might have been able to avoid at least a part of this backlash. But the way they went about it, and we saw it, the way they executed it, I thought was, I, I just went, really? Yeah. That's what you're doing? It was in that moment, which is why, I, like, I tell people this, I say, I tried watching The Walking Dead, but I can't get into it because I don't like the way certain seasons end, and I don't like how certain pacing is. It just goes to show why a lot of people have said, like, I'm not going to watch the show anymore because it's just it's it's just build up, and then they don't, you don't get paid for You don't get a, a payoff. And that was the problem is that 
they were pretty much promising fans this ginormous payoff. Yes, we were going to see Negan, but hey, we were going to see him kill somebody important or, or somebody from the group, and we don't get that. And that's a shitty move to do on your fans, right. you know, to, to tease, like, say, hey, we got this great, this, this one character that everybody was pining for since season one, and they finally bring this character, Negan, in. I got to tell you, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, great job as Yeah, me. nothing wrong with him nothing at all. Nothing wrong with fantastic. him at all. fantastic. Yes. But again, the fact is now that fans of the show have to wait till October to see who Negan killed it's very ridiculous, and we can you can tell how bad this is for AMC in, in the show by how much damage control they had to do this week by saying, oh, no, don't worry, you're going to find out who we did in the first episode of season seven. Like, they had to do so much yeah. damage control. And did and you I, see all these articles like, oh, the music might tell you who he kills? And I was no, like, it doesn't. I'm like, are we reaching? Why do we have to reach now? Why do we have to do this much damage control? You can't undo it. You just can't. You can't exactly. undo it. So guess what? You're stuck now. You messed up, and now you got to live with it. And now here's the thing. So when season seven comes on the show or on the TV in October, now of course we're gonna find out who we killed. Now, like I said, I don't watch the show, but I do have enough information in my head about Walking Dead itself, so I have an idea, and I can kind of list off that. I can just say this: no matter who it is. People are going to be pissed either way or one or the other. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Because here's the thing. So in the comics, this is a heavy spoiler. In the comics, Negan kills Glenn. He right. hits him with Lucille, and he really does some damage to Glenn. That, and, you know, so, and Maggie is pregnant. And so Glenn, you know, he's pretty much he's lying here. His face is like half – he looks like Two-Face literally. Uh, and he's just saying Maggie, and he's dying on the floor. Now – some people are saying, could it be Michonne? It's not going to be Michonne because Negan doesn't kill women. He takes them as wives. Right. And so it's, it wouldn't make sense for him to kill Michonne. People, now, here's another option. Abraham. Is it going to be Abraham? Could be. Could be Michael Cullitz's character, Abraham, on the show. But here's the thing. By killing Abraham, they're going way off of the reservation in terms of the comic. Now, another person that has been rumored... And it's been Norman Reedus, who, of course, plays Daryl, who, of course, is not part of the comics. He was created for the show. Right, right. Now, here's why I think it could be Daryl. Because here's the thing. Glenn, they've kind of faux killed him off twice already. So I think if they do it now, people are just going to be like, eh, because they ruined it. And the writers did it themselves by faux killing off Glenn, right. like making him disappear for a while. Like, is Glenn dead? Is he not? And they have him come back and, and, and him explain why he wasn't dead or whatever. Uh, doing that twice, pretty much, it, it takes away the suspense. But doing it to Daryl and killing off Daryl, Norman Reedus has a new show that he's going to start working on. And uh, it's not anywhere affiliated, I believe, with The Walking Dead. No, I don't think so either. And so he's doing that. He's also kind of hinted that he wants to kind of stop being Daryl and go away and, and do his own career. I mean, he was in... Uh, he was in a movie recently. I can't think of the name of it, but he, he was in a feature film recently that was in theaters. Um, and that's, tell, uh, that's telling, though, don't you think that you can't yeah. think of it? I well, mean, I well, think well, that think... could be part of the reason why he wants to step away. Well, that and also remember he had the whole Silent Hill thing that he was yeah. doing that got canceled. So he wants to get away from that. And I think he wants, you know, cause I think Norman Reedus wants to be known more than just Daryl and Boondock Saints, really. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, he goes to a lot of cons and. What do you think he does at the cons? Right. Like at Wizard World and stuff. Right. And, right. And so 
if it's Daryl, it's one of those people saying, oh, if Daryl dies, you're right. Well, at this certain point, it's kind of like, you know, they didn't give him much to do this season from stuff that I read. And, and I have a lot of friends who really, really watch the show and love it. And, um, I mean, some, a lot of them were disappointed in the ending, but yeah, a lot of them were just like, yeah, they didn't give him much to do in the show. There's certain scenes like where he just does things where it's like, they come out of nowhere. He does like he, pretty much he pulls a rocket launcher out of his ass at one point in the show. And, uh, it, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, he has to go. Like he has to go at some point. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, he lived, like you said, he lifts right out cause he was created for the show, but I think this was kind of telling too, where we're kind of asking fans what they thought about what happened, people that actually watched the show. And I thought one of them in particular stood out to me that was really telling. It was a listener of ours named Ken who said, uh, really disappointed, going to have to wait until October now, but hey, at least we've got Game of Thrones in a few weeks. And I'm like, that should tell you all you need to know right there. Right, exactly. Now, that should tell you the state of the show. Exactly. And well, the thing is too, is like, you know, look at us in general. We watch a lot of nerd shows on television but what do we always say? Well, we got this. We never, we never really say. Well, at least we got this coming up, unless the show is really, really bad. Yeah. You know. But for the most part, we're like, oh yeah, Arrow and Flash and everything else, and and you know. But we 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 don't mention them like, oh, I'm glad this is over because hey, hey, at least we got this now. You know, kind of thing to fill time. But yeah, when when you're asking me a question about like one show and say, well, I was disappointed, but hey, at least we got this. It's like, hey. I'm badly beaten right now, but here's an ice. At least I have that ice pack to come kind of take down right. the swelling. Exactly. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel that way. You should be excited for the next season. And I think that to a degree, some people still are. But I think people are more upset because they're like, you gave us that. Now we have to wait for this. And the, and the thing that sucks even more is you know that the season seven premiere of Walking Dead is going to draw huge numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to, it is. And I mean, you know, but again, they're going to, and yeah, AMC is literally going to bleed Walking Dead until they can't get any more out of it. Right. And but, how much do you really look forward to Fear the Walking Dead at this point? Well, remember, we couldn't get through two episodes of it. So, yeah, that's and, and, and a lot of people aren't liking it either. I mean, no. I just want to quickly say is when AMC is like, hey, you know that plane we saw on Fear the Walking Dead? We're going to make a little web series on it. I know. I'm like, on. oh my God. But speaking of death. A show that got it completely right is Arrow. And I will admit, and I will say this, Katie Cassidy, I love her. She's one of those things where, like, she grew with the show. I liked her because her character was one of those characters that I felt grew as the season went on because she went from kind of, like, this girl that used to, you know, was with Oliver, and now she's, like, an assistant district attorney. And then, spoiler alert, she gets killed, and I was destroyed. <laughs> I think the internet was destroyed. We were depressed in my house. You were depressed. I mean, there were tears. I mean, I mean, I went in the shower afterwards and just I, I, I bathed myself in tears. It wasn't good. It really wasn't good. And I tried to say, you know what? You know, maybe I could rub some shampoo in my eyes and stop the crying and 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 burn my ducks and. I ended up still crying, but now my world looked like fucking Matt Murdock's vision where everything was on fire. Yeah, pretty So much. double pain right there for me. But, yeah, I mean, the way that Arrow went about, because remember, at the beginning of the season, we saw there was a headstone. We wondered, who could it be? Yep. Is it Felicity? We were dead set that it was Diggle. Like, we're like, it's got to be Diggle because he's so close to Oliver and everything mm-hmm. else. And no, it's Laurel. And I'm just like... Bravo to the writers, because, oh my god, I, I, again, you just, 
I, I was I've never been devastated as much as I have been from a character dying in the show like it was with Laurel. And the way they do it where it's, it's Damien Dark and he's like, you know, telling her, hey, if you're, you know, your dad, I told you, made your father a promise. He ever, you know, double tra- betrayed me. I'd kill him. And he pretty much found a way to kill him. And this makes sense because Damien Dark was never hell bent on killing Captain Lance. If you're turned down, he was going to kill his daughters. Right, and, exactly. and, and we knew it. And, we, and Lance even said he was, Laurel was in danger. But Laurel was Dark's main objective the entire time if if Lance, Captain Lance ever right. double-crossed him. But I think that what how this works and why it's so different from The Walking Dead was because the writers legit teased this and built this thing up of who could be the person that dies. And they didn't end it with a finale of a cliffhanger or anything. They said, nope, you're going to get it right here. Even like the, the – the, it was – even on Wednesday, they, a story came out where they said – they literally did an interview on Wednesday. They said – Guess what? You're gonna find out who's on the tombstone and whose you know grave Oliver and Barry were standing at, and it all makes sense. And just again, the writing was so phenomenal, and it's big news because again, it's a major character, and this opens up a lot of doors where Arrow can go. Yeah, and, ripple effects, man. And oh, and I think the biggest ripple effect is on Diggle because now and we're talking about this before we before we started doing the show. Diggle is he's he's in a world of hell right now. And at this point, I'm sorry, but there's no way in anything they do now, or he has to, he has to legit trust Oliver with everything. Cause Oliver was right about everything about his brother, yeah. everything. And they lead into this big news event where, Hey, this big member of team arrow gets killed off. Wow. 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 I mean, and wow. that's not even all. I mean, you got the ripple effects with captain Lance, who I thought was going to die right there. I, know. I actually thought he was going to have a heart attack and die right there. And then of Oliver, especially when she says, I was never the love of your life, but you were always the love of mine right before then she isn't going to die. Then she dies. If you're Oliver, how do you even take that at that point? And he even said, why are you telling me this now? And they go through that whole thing. I won't go through the whole scene, but I mean, it was gut-wrenching, and it affects every... It even affects Felicity, because where in the world is Oliver's head as far as, you know, his romantic life right now? And then what I love, and this is not the first time Arrow has done this correctly. Let's think back to when Deathstroke kills Oliver's mother. Right. They didn't do that. Again, that was not done in a finale. That was done during the season, and they were allowed to show the ripple effects of that after the fact, and that's why this kind of works. Now, sure, Arrow's going to go on a couple-of-week break right now. They're going to reconvene. I think it's April 27th. But now we get to see the ripple effects of what happens from this major character death and how they go about it and how they're going to get Damien Dark again now that he has the idol. How is this going to affect the psyche of the team? How And Oliver said in the episode as well, the team is breaking when he was talking to Laurel. How does this, does this bring the team back together? Does it not? Does everybody not trust everybody again? And then Diggle's brother, who I want to die in fire now. I mean, it's just, there's <laughs> so much, there's so much going on. And then, if you saw the previews for the next episode, Diggle goes off the rails on Dark's wife. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he say, does. Say what you want about, you know, violence towards women and all that stuff on TV. I just, I mean, come on. This is this is going to be an amazing return for Arrow. And I think that this ramped up this season 100-fold by when this happened. 
And this exactly. is how you do it, by the way. Exactly. And, and again, and I, this just pretty much shows. And whenever you have somebody in your life and they say, oh, one last time. I'm um, never saying that ever. Yeah, because nine times out of ten, at least what we see on TV, they, it does, they don't make it out so well. They either get seriously hurt or they get killed off. And uh, again, and this also is news because, remember, it was announced recently that Katie Cassidy is be playing Black Siren on The Flash from Earth 2. So... Again, she's not going away from the CW universe. She's staying in, but she's going to be a different character. So, hey, it makes sense. This and is a again, movie that makes sense. And again, now they're going to have to fight her yeah. right after she dies. Okay, so that's going to be very difficult. And I think there's they're setting up for a huge Earth 2, Earth 1 war type thing. But let's talk about this for a second because we talked about this off the air and I wanted to bring this, bring this in. Of course, we talked about Le- Legends of Tomorrow right. and how maybe they're going to be switching casts every season so that kind of everybody's saying okay maybe this opens up the door for sarah to come back and be black canary but i have a crackpot theory and i just want to share it follow me on this i'm not saying this is going to happen this is just a theory and this is just a hey what if kind of thing what if the next black canary is nessa yeah (laughs) because well because ever because this is nessa has that connection only with team arrow but she's really the only character that really has a certain bond, I think, with both the Lance girls. Yeah. yeah. And think about it. What's she doing right now as far as on the show? I know she has oh, another yeah, show no, on another she's... network, but what's right. she doing right now on the show? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, they don't have to use her all the time, but she'll be probably like one of those right. she'll come in, in and out kind of thing. But also, remember, who was just – Given the the spot as a series regular, it's Echo. It's Echo Kellum, right? Who who is Mister Terrific? So this That's opens right. up a door because they've been teasing Mister Terrific for a long time throughout the season. So it makes perfect sense as that hey, there's a spot open. But again, Team Arrow is broken. Who's going to be that person to kind of tape it all back together and bring it back? You know? Right, exactly. And you know we're going to have to go through the and expect this to happen. We're going to have to go through the. Do they want to bring another member to the team? We're going to have to go through the, does Oliver really want to do that to somebody else? And is this the life you want? Yada, yada, yada. You're going to have to get through that, okay? So just prepare for that happening if we're going to bring Mr. Terrific into the fold. No, kids, he's not going to be Mr. Terrific right away either, I don't think. We're going to have to give this, I mean, they might not even get to it next season. I think that we'll definitely take steps towards that. But remember, this isn't the true Mr. Terrific from the comics either. Mr. Terrific in the comics is kind of arrogant and kind of an ass. And he uh, he's a very smart dude, but he's a lot older in the comics, too. So this is a younger adaptation, so I will be very interested to see how they evolve his character going forward. Because, man, there's just a lot to look forward to on Arrow now. Exactly. Speaking of looking forward to things, James, one thing we're looking forward to in December, at least I know you are, is Rogue One, a Star Wars story, of course. It's going to be the little bit of a bridge movie between Episode 7 and Episode 8. It's, of course, going to be coming out December 16th. And, hey, they released the first teaser trailer. Now the trailer was two minutes. But we got a good look at some people. And, uh, I, you know, I want your, give you to give your opinion on this first before I give mine because I was very mad on the situation, okay, on the trailer well, itself. First of all, let's just get it out of the way right now. Felicity Jones, awesome. I loved her in this trailer. I think she's going to be a great main character for this movie. My favorite line in the whole trailer. I, I, you know that Peter Griffin moment where he's like, done, and he walks out of the theater? Yeah. When she says, it is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. When she said that, I was like, done. <laughs> right there. Love it. Stop the trailer. I'm good. Let's go. Let's do this in December. Because, I mean, it was, I mean, it's like the most obvious line to say. I'm like, that's perfect right there. That sums up everything that she's about. 
and I love it. I mean, outside of that, there was a lot of action. We saw a lot of nostalgia pieces like the AT-ATs walking around and stuff. Gotta love that. Of course, stormtroopers blowing up everywhere. Um, so there was definitely a lot of action. I think the jury's still kind of out because we don't see a lot. We see a lot of characters, but we don't really get a lot about any of them in the trailer. The focus was on Felicity Jones, and as it should be, she's the main character. And of course, the plot of they're building something we want to know about more about it. Of course, it's the Death Star, but... I think it's a battle of nostalgia between the two of us. Yeah. Well, because me, it's a, it's different eras that we grew up in. So the kid in me is like, well, I, I think, see, you know, can we find out how they stole the Death Star plans? Absolutely. I want to do this. Let's go. Well, and the reason why I'm very mad on it now, I'll say this. Um, Felic- you know, Felicity Jones' character, Jen Erso, uh, again, I think that she's going to be pretty cool, a pretty cool character. I don't like how people are saying, oh, she's a Mary Sue character. It's like, she was in two minutes of a trailer. Shut up. Yeah, <laughs> you don't, shut up. It's like, just shut up. Um, but my thing is, is just, I'm Death star out, man. I really am. Like, I know this is going back. It's a prequel, bef- you know, uh, pretty much what happens before episode four, you know, between three and four. But, I mean, I, I, I don't know, man. I get it. I get it, especially after what happened The Force Awakens and yeah. how you react to that. I get it. Don't worry. But I... I'm I'm wondering how much actual Death Star we're gonna get. Well, you know it's what a I mean? movie about the Death Star plan, so I think we're gonna get a hell of a lot of it. But it's about the plans, not about the actual Death Star necessarily. No, it's kind of, technically it kind of is because they want to find out. Hey, they're building this giant thing. We want to know about it. But anyways, I mean, the action looked pretty cool. Um, I, I'm glad that it's not centered around. At least what it doesn't appear to be centered around Jedi's or the Force in general. It's yeah, I don't more, think we're gonna get any it's, of that. It's more like it's literally gonna probably be like you know what this is probably gonna be. It's probably gonna be kind of like Rogue Squadron the movie. You know, maybe something like that. In a, in a way, sure. I mean, you might get a couple glimpses of Vader here and there because he's alive in this movie. Right. So we might see a little bit of that. I don't know if it's just going to be him stalking down the hallways or whatever. Or maybe they're going to make him a bigger part of the movie than we think. There might be some sort of a Sith involved in the movie, but I don't know that they're going to go that route. I think you're right. I think it's going to be, you know, kind of a human versus human kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, again, the trailer, again, it was released this week, and uh, yeah, I was just very, I don't, there was, wasn't really, there wasn't a part of it where I was like, oh my god, I'm losing my shit over it, this is amazing. It, it is, it's, it's one of those things where, given my opinion on The Force Awakens, and a lot of people are feeling this as well, um, who weren't really fans of The Force Awakens, because of how Disney handled it, a lot of people were kind of, I think, like, Okay, I'm tempting expectations here. We're going to see how it is. And who knows? Maybe I go see it and it blows me away. I mean, because in there's a nothing sense, wrong with tempering expectations. Though. No, but in a sense, it could be... But in a sense, though, it is, in a sense, something that's original. Um, and we might probably more like haven't seen before in any of the movies. But again, I, my expectations, they're not low. They're just, I'm not going in expecting to be blown away by it. I'm not I'm, going in high expectations. It looks interesting, but part of me... Um, I don't know. And it also is going to be important on the surrounding cast as well. Uh, you know, Force Whitaker, for example, of course he's going to be great, but everybody outside of her and Force Whitaker, it, it's all on their strengths. And that's what's going to, it's going to, you know, anytime you have a movie that focuses on a group like this, it's going to fo- it's the strength of the group has to be like that. You know what I'm right. saying? And I'm more worried about Gareth Edwards than anything else. <laughs> After Godzilla, I'm I'm worried more about Gareth Edwards than anything else. I mean, are we yeah. gonna cut away from action scenes to watch, you know, two two uh, commanders of the Empire sipping tea or something? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to miss something that's going on that's uh, that's awesome to to go see something that's nonsensical. So hopefully, 
We don't get a whole lot of that. But again, I think it's, it's a generational thing because I was young when Star Wars was new and, you know, the de- and, you know, I don't necessarily need to see something else about the Death Star either. But now you're telling me that I can actually find out how Princess Leia got the plans for the Death Star but in the a, R2-D2 and set everything into motion? Hell yes! Let's do that! But in a sense, though, in Episode 6, don't they say how they got the plans, though, in a, in a sense? Well, they, they say how they get them, but we don't see it executed. <laughs> In great detail. True, that's you know? true. I mean, we'll I mean we're going to see the actual execution. I mean, there's going to be... The, the only thing that sucks about this is, you know they get the plans. So at every at any point in the movie, if it looks like they're not going to get the plans, you're like, somebody drops them down a giant hole or something, right. you know they're going to get them back because they get the plans. So there's no real edge to this, necessarily, as far as them maybe not getting the plans. You know they get them. So that, to me, is the only real problem they're going to face with this movie. Exactly. Move on to our final story, James. Sticking around with the whole Disney Marvel concept, uh, Cloak and Dagger has been a comic series a lot of people from a lot of years have wanted to see adapted in one way or another, whether it's a TV show or movie. Well, now it's coming to TV and it just got greenlit this week. Yeah, actually, this story comes from Variety. We're going to get it on Freeform, which, of course, is formerly ABC Family. Now, if you're not familiar with Cloak and Dagger, here's the deal. It's the story of Tandy, Tandy Bowen and Tyrone Johnson. They're basically teenagers they got different backgrounds, and they acquire some new superpowers. Now, here's the deal. Tandy's power, she can actually emit daggers of light, and Tyrone can kind of engulf people in darkness. So, I mean, they fall in love, and it's kind of a teenage teenage love story kind of a deal. So, it makes sense that it's going to be on free form. No writers or anything have been attached to this yet. But, I mean, kind of what are your expectations for this show? I mean, the, the characters that were created seem like they kind of fit more of the teenage lifestyle, and, and Freeform's gotten a lot different than it used to be from ABC Family. I, I, well, first of all, I don't know much about Freeform until you told me about it, because I don't have cable. I, I, never, I honestly never knew that ABC Family changed its name or, yep. or to Freeform. It's, well, to be fair, it was recently, so it's not like this well, I didn't, years well, ago. Either way, I didn't know until you, till you, I read the, the story. But anyway, um, this at first I was kind of like, why are they putting on this? And like on, an AB, on ABC or whatever... And my guess is it's not going to be it's not going to be tied to the MCU. I got a feeling that it's not. I don't know how you can. I mean, how many things can you tie to the MCU at this point? Well, I mean, you're kind of tying the Netflix series and into Which the is MCU because those characters right. make sense. Right, but again, yeah, Cloak and Dagger. If you're making like this teen kind of romancey thing, it, how does it tie into the MCU? MCU, you know what I'm saying? I'm just waiting for the first promo coming this soon. She's a girl in a new town. She meets this guy, Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> they fall in love. It's teen love. I don't know how I can move away from you. I just love you so much. Cloak and Dagger coming this spring. I I, I, underst- I understand that it, it might seem like it's going to happen that way, but the stuff that's on Freeform. Yeah. I mean, it's like like we have drug peddling lesbians and stuff on Freeform, and they're doing a, uh, a show based off that uh, Mortal Instruments, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're doing something off of that. It's a lot. I don't want to say edgy, okay? I don't want to go there because this is basically a network for teenagers and young adults. So I don't want to say it's edgy. Maybe for them it's edgy. But I understand that you take this story and put it on there because I think it works for that generation. And again, like like Superhero Girl, DC Superhero Girls wasn't made for us. It was made for younger girls. But you watch it and you appreciate it because you're like, this is pretty good. And this is how you want to get young people into these characters. And maybe this is like one of those gateway shows where, you know... Especially for teenage girls, maybe they're not necessarily into all stuff Marvel, 
But, you know, you get them in on this show and they're like, oh, maybe I want to see Jessica Jones now. Or maybe I want to go see, um, not that they're not going to see Civil War, but you know what I'm saying. Maybe it gets them interested at a younger age and they can maybe hook them into the comics as well. Exactly. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. Come next, we're going to visit the House of Penance with Peter J. Tomasi as he comes on to talk his new series from Dark Horse. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. This is comic book writer Peter Hogan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we decided to take a little bit of a historical tour this week on the Down and Nerdy Podcast, because we're going to go through the very peculiar House of Winchester. Of course, we're talking about House of Penance, brand new series, six-part series, coming out from Dark Horse on April the 13th. We have writer extraordinaire Peter J. Tomasi on the show this week. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. So, Peter, the Winchester House, to me, has one of the most unique backgrounds of any haunted place, mostly because, of course, of the compulsions and the paranoia of its owner, Sarah Winchester. So what is it about her and the house itself that not only caught your attention, but, but makes them both unique, in a sense? It's it's actually sort of along the similar lines you just mentioned. They're, the paranoia, but to me, the, the pure obsessiveness of it, um, first hooked me just thinking of some woman, especially in the Victorian age, sort of just leading the charge of building this house 24 hours a day, seven days a week for approximately 38 years, believe it or not, just was like, it kind of just hit me hard when I first heard it. And it, it stayed with me for a very long time. And as I, and then I looked into her, her history and just sort of saw this, this, this woman in pain, obviously, and, and, and sort of, I would imagine, as you said, um, having, you know, some paranoia, the obsessiveness, um, and, and, and the hint of redemption in some way that just kind of really pulled me in. And it, it kind of all happened just by happenstance, which was we were, I was in Salinas, California, where my dad was born. We were actually uh, touring the John Steinbeck house. And uh, somebody there on the tour actually mentioned the Sarah Winchester Mystery House. And it kind of perked my interest. And we knew we you know, discovered it was on San Jose about an hour and a half or so away. And uh, we ended up going. But when we went, it was closed, unfortunately. So <laughs> Of course it, it was. Of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> a house with that many like dead ends and everything else, of course it's closed. <laughs> they ate a house of mystery for many years. <laughs> So it wasn't until really a while, a couple years later, that I, I got—I actually got a, a, a personal private tour of the place. But all that time, I had kept in my little notebook, just as I after after just discovering the house itself, just kept little notes for scenes and character bits, and and just um, just kind of you know, it's one of those stories that stays with the writer. It never kind of let go. It was always in the back, kind of waiting to like, hey, come on, write me, please. I'm I'm begging you and. Finally, I did, and um, just, you know, as we all opened up with, it, it was that just that obsessiveness and, um, and then adding elements of that redemption that I wanted to really play with that, that just kind of stayed with me and, and, and ended up turning into a, a project at Dark Horse that I'm just incredibly proud of right now. It's definitely an amazing book, and you've actually done a lot of amazing work in the world of superheroes, too, and written for some very popular characters. Now, you kind of take on a piece of history with so much lore to this Winchester house, so what are some of the challenges in bringing a real-life place and story like that to life? You know, I thought there'd be more. Um, 
I'm a big historical nut myself, so it wasn't writing historical pieces wasn't something that was sort of daunting at all. I really, I, I've done some other things um, with a historical bent to it. Um, Light Brigade, for instance, uh, the Dark Horse was kind enough to republish in a really beautiful hardcover edition, uh, edition recently. But I found it odd because, like, the, the little the research I had done, I always seemed to keep finding the same things about Sarah Winchester in the house. And it, and, I, and, it, and as interesting as it was, it never went, it never broadened out. Nobody had ever really done anything major aside from sort of this whole ghost story thing ghost house and mystery house and, and playing all the broad aspects of it. And it's sort of been that limitation of research that didn't, the, the material that didn't seem to be out there, at least that I couldn't find allowed me to suddenly build on the historical fact of her mission, just in regards to the house and then sort of really overlay a big fictional element uh, into the story with um, the main thing being, as you've seen in the first issue, which is, you know, the redemption aspect, the penance, which is, you know, all these workers that I, I finally, I had the idea that I really loved for myself that it, like, when, when it hooks you, it was like, okay, all these people working in the house are all people who spilled blood before. Everyone there is, is looking for a little, is, is looking for redemption. Everyone is looking for forgiveness and for the blood they've spilled in their lives. So they're all killers um, soldiers, gunfighters, who knows? I didn't go into too many, like there's no serial killers or anything, but <laughs> who knows what they've, what they've gone through, but they're all there. The house is a beacon to them. And, and one of the main characters that a, a fictional character that I created was Warren Peck, who's we find out was, you know, you'll, as we'll see as we go along was a sniper for the union army, but also, you know, played in with the government some bit in regards to pushing farmers off the land uh, for manifest destiny purposes and Indians and things like that. So we start to explore him at the same time and, and Sarah and Warren's tracks become parallel and we see how they both, they sort of at the same time, they're, they're they, they feed off each other, their fears, their paranoia. And uh, we see how it kind of pulls them together and at the same time pushes them apart. Well, exactly. I mean, you mentioned one thing I like that you, you, know, you said you built on this thing, and you know, you mentioned the workers. And remember, Sarah has that rule where, like, hey, you're going to turn your guns over to me if you're going to stay here, which is interesting because, again, you know, I'm somebody who I never know, I didn't really know much about this going into it. So I'm like, that's pretty interesting because her last name's Winchester, you know, the whole Winchester rifle and everything. And then you read more about this. And one thing I feel that your series uh, does really, really well, Peter, is that. It takes people like myself who didn't know much about the Winchester House, and after reading the first issue, it made me want to go out on my own and learn more about the history of these people and the house itself. So outside, uh, of, outside of that, what are some things you want the readers to get out of the series as they uh, pick up House of Penance? I think I just want them to, to get immersed in it. I want them to sort of like... I, and I think Ian Bertram and Dave Stewart, the, Ian the artist and Dave the colorist, they the visuals of the piece with the scripting just sort of, I, I want them to just kind of dive in be pulled into this world where you really, I, I, the, the art to me, as I saw it come to life was just amazing because Ian humanizes it yet. The horror of it that he brings to the table is just amazing. It was kind of, it, it was, I mean, I've seen a lot, I've been, a, I've been in the business for, for a while now. And I got to say, I mean, and I've seen a lot of different horror books too. And, even if it wasn't me 
writing the book, I would I, I was crazily I would call Ian and say, "Dude, you are creeping me out." <laughs> and the pages were are incredibly creepy yet deeply personal and and just you know there's not a lot of artists that can get when you when you see a character on the page you can kind of see what's going on behind their eyes mm-hmm. and Ian Ian somehow does that and it's just it's pretty moving and emotional and it just I think readers will like just fall in love with the characters first or I hope so and then just sort of then get immersed in the blood really sort of start to drown themselves and and just feel the weight of of the of the guilt that's kind of pressing down on these people with 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 Peck the gunfighter and at the same time Sarah who you know is feeling like the Winchester rifle and the name she bears is responsible for just a bloody trail across the United States of America. And, you know, it's, it was one of those things too, as the story moved along, you realize you're writing a story obviously about guns, but you don't realize that something that you're writing in from the 1800s, early 1900s is then incredibly just pertinent today that it's like, it's literally just the same concerns we have about gun control and, and the sort of uh, propagation of uh, of more guns and things it just suddenly it's it's amazing how the same it just suddenly hit like a chord for me that this is also just a story about today just as it is about then was that your kind of intention going in when you wanted to choose this story to tell is that part of what you wanted to do since there's so much of that going on in the news and in our society right now is this kind of another way you wanted to tell that story like hey there were problems like that back then as well I can honestly say no. Um, I'm happy that the story has evolved in that way, in a very organic way, but it really was the characters first and, and world building that specific, that specific house and that, and that area of San Jose then, and, and suddenly seeing that as, you know, as they say, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll listen to some writers interviews where they'll, they'll talk about, you know, how the characters will literally just, talk to them and the dialogue will come. I mean, that is so true. But at the same, at the same time with this, it's like as they were speaking and I'm, and I'm, you know, getting the dialogue down and the story is kind of evolving. It's like, Holy moly, this thing is really just, is there's another layer to this that I even, that I didn't even see coming. And it, it really was, it really was, it was really cool to watch kind of to just bloom and, and, and take shape. We're talking with writer Peter J. Tomasi, of course, writes House of Penance. Issue 1 of 6 will be released through Dark Horse Comics on April 13th. So, Peter, we, James and I were talking about this a while back, and we're both big, you know, haunted places, nuts, pretty much. And if you could spend a night in a haunted place for a night, what would it be and why? Hmm. I think I really would love to spend a night at the, at the, at the Winchester house. I think that would be really really cool because I got to say when I did get the chance to go for that personal tour it and especially after I started writing and getting a sense of it and then walking across that threshold and into that house and because the house when you walk through it yeah I, I think the key is that you do see someone's personality coming from everything in the house every item is just is her is her psyche at the time is her mindset and, and her obsessiveness and and it just, it, it's just, you don't get into that kind of situation a lot. You'll walk into some places and, oh, this place was horror, was associated with ghosts walking around or this or that. But when you walk into that place and you kind of just, 
even in the daytime and just seeing all these little details about the house that you learn and, and the, from the stairs to nowhere, the windows, the doors to nowhere, the, you open the door and it goes four, four floors down. Um, it's, that would be a hell of a house to have a sleepover. I'm literally picturing you like walking around the house. And it's like Scooby Doo, where they're like walking upside down the staircase yep. and everything else. I'm, and it's it's pretty. It's insane. Like I said, you have all those trap doors and all those different places. So again, it's kind of like walking in like a like a ghost maze, pretty much. Or like the the mind of a person or somebody who, of course, was paranoid. So, you know, I mean, it's really interesting where interest lurks at every corner. Yeah, I think that's really cool because it is. It's like you'd be walking around this maze of a house, but. It all has some weird purpose in somebody else's head, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Man, hide-and-go-seek would be a bitch in that house. Oh, my God. I, like, can you imagine? I mean, some of this, I, I mean look, I'm, who knows what – I mean, I don't know if I was showing everything, but you definitely got a sense that there was just some other stuff around the house that they, they, they weren't going to show you. But it was, you know, just every little thing about it just was really weird. Glass, there's like a glass – floor that I remember walking it's like whoa, whoa what don't walk on that right and I'm like why the hell would she put that there you know and it's like and you just realize you know as the read the, the research that was around and the stuff that I started to build into it you know really was you know there was it was twofold for her with the house because it was it was a place to confuse the ghosts that she felt were coming for her and at the same time it was also a place for the ghosts that she wanted to sort of put to put at ease. She wanted them to actually have a place of comfort and of, of, of high style of, of something that, you know, that maybe they just, before they go on to that next other part of the afterlife, they can, they can actually sit back and enjoy themselves in, in the comfort of, of, of a, of a well done house. And it was like, so these, this, this just dichotomy, this, 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 these two factors banging up against each other that are just diametrically opposed, you know? I don't know about you, but right now I'm picturing Robin Leach's voice just running through the Winchester house and a lifestyle rich and famous. Yes, this house can be yours. It has everything from a glass floor to doors that lead to nowhere. It can be yours for a life of luxury. All you want right here on a lifestyle of the rich, famous, and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Robin walks through the door and falls for for us. I am now a leech on the grass. <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and famous. <laughs> yeah, you know what's you know what's funny about the house is when you first see it. I remember, like you know, in your mind's eye, because when I first saw it, um, it, it evolved from when I first saw it, like in the in a while. I can't remember what date I first saw it, but when when I when I saw it in the two thousand and five, I can't remember now. But when I got there again and suddenly seeing, you know, in your head you see all the land and the and the and in San Jose in your mind's eye that you think would be retained, or at least you would have hoped would. But then it's like so much of the place now. It's really just the house and the immediate property around it. And you know, there's like a when I went there was a massive parking lot, a movie theater. Like after after afterwards after this thing, I was like, wow. I was just like my head was spinning. I was like, ah. Eh, I go to the movies, and you know, there's a movie theater right next door. <laughs> oh and wow! I went to see Pirates of the Caribbean, I think, and I whatever the second or third one was at that time, but and but it was so, it was right there, and everything was so imposing on the house. It was a little bit of a shame. I wish, I wish, I'm sure, and I'm sure the the people who own the house wish they would have been able to 
you know, keep uh, acres upon acres of land so we could have seen it as it was, you know, back in the day. But that wasn't to be, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And Peter, I did have to ask you about this since we talked about how some of the workers worked basically around the clock on this house for so long. Hey, comic book creators are no no strangers to burning the midnight oil. So what's the longest you ever worked on a project straight start to finish? And do you remember what it was? No, I can't remember. I mean, I got to say, I think in the last two years, I mean, I, I would say actually this last year, 2015, was probably the hardest I've ever worked. I mean, I, I've done, I think, over a thousand pages wow. um, <laughs> of writing this year with the monthlies along with the weekly comic Arc of Night that I was doing uh, for the digital first and then being republished later as a comic. Uh, so that was, you know, a lot of work, which I'm thankful for, obviously, but it was a uh, it did. It, it basically felt like I hadn't slept in a year. <laughs> <laughs> I get that, man. <laughs> so it was. Uh, but I would say, yeah, it's it's there's there's definitely a lot of all nighters. And and look, you know, when you're when you're a writer, when you're a freelance person too, and you and you have a family, and you know, you've got to, you know, sometimes those you know people hit the sack at nine, ten o'clock, and then you're up. Your your best work can be done, you know, as it is sometimes for me when it's all quiet and, you know, the phones have stopped and the emails have stopped and you, you get to write from, you know, 10 o'clock till 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, 10 in the, 10 in the evening till 7. So, and then you get your kid up and you're out, and then you're, you know, and then you're up for another 24 hours after that. <laughs> it begins. <laughs> it does, it does. So it's, uh, the free last life is definitely not for the, uh, for the weak-hearted who, who who need their 12 hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, before I let you out of here, man, where can people find out more about you and your work? I would say, I mean, I've spent most of my career at DC Comics. Um, been really happy with Dark Horse right now, just, you know, being able to do these projects like Light Brigade um, that reverted back to me from DC and um, The Mighty also, um, another book that was creator-owned. So they've actually republished both of those. There's still a bunch of DC stuff on the way, so it, uh, I, I luckily will not be off the stands for hopefully quite a while. And and obviously all the backlist stuff is always there too. So like you know the Batman and Robin run that I did with Pat Gleason, um, Green Lantern Corps that I did with Pat Gleason, and then Fernando Pissarin and a bunch of other talented artists. So um, yeah, it's uh, I've been very lucky uh, in my career from going from an assistant editor and write to Batman group editor and then go on freelance. I've been, uh, I've definitely been very blessed and lucky to, to, to have a, a career this long and, and, you know, continue to, to have so much fun with it. And you're on Twitter as well, correct? I am actually, I am. <laughs> I'm not a big social network guy. I, I sort of just, I sort of just really in the last like two or three years started to really, you know, start to, to, to get into that. But it's, uh, it's one of those things. I mean, honestly, you want to be in it, but you know, there's only so many hours in a day that yep. you, uh, you know, and some people, I don't know how they do it. There's some guys who are just great at it and, and, and women that I know that are just, you know, they're able to really do that. And to me, it's like, you know what, if there's any, if there's an, if there's an extra hour that I could be sleeping, I'd rather be sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. I couldn't echo that anymore if I could. So <laughs> if you want to get your hands on issue number one of House of Penance, you're wondering, okay, how can I do that? It's going to be available at your local shops and digitally on April the 13th from Dark Horse Comics. Make sure you find out more at darkhorsecomics.com as well. Peter J. Tomasi, thank you so much for chatting with us about House of Penance today. Oh, it was my pleasure. I, I appreciate the press and, and, and getting a chance to talk about it with you guys today. Okay, James. So when it's time for us to look for studio space in a building for our, you know, for the down nerdy, when we just 
grow and expand even to what we are now. Um, cross off the mystery house off that list for potential uh, places to house our equipment and everything in. Yeah, because stairs that go to nowhere aren't exactly good for career building. No, and I mean, you don't want to be doing a show on a glass floor and it just breaks. Next thing you know, we fall through the gates of hell. And, you know, it's just, it'd be a tough, man, you know? Yeah, that would not be good. But it's good to talk about the Winchester House with Peter J. Tomasi, who was there and then wrote House of Penance and tied it all together. It's a great book, man. It is a a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And again, just the, the... the psychology that he does with all the characters and, and Sarah Winchester. It's, it's really great. The art is really spooky and spectacular, spectacular. It's a great book and you gotta go get it. It's, it's going to be an amazing, amazing series. And I just, we just can't promote it enough. Like it's insane enough. It is an amazing series. And it was great to have Peter J. Tomasiano talk house of penance with us, but that's going to do it for this week's edition of the down nerdy podcast. And thanks to Peter J. Tomasi for coming on and talk. House of Penance with us. We had a blast talking about it. But hey, guess what? We're on social media as well. You can hit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. Same thing on Instagram. We're, on, we're at downnerdy757 on Instagram. I'm at Merc with one arm, Mr. Witham. I'm at James Ace Witham. And of course, you can always follow our travels at downnerdypodcast.com. Find out all about what's going on. On the show this week with the This Week tab, we've got two new reviews on the website as well. We're reviewing more comics for you because we don't want you to buy bad books. That is our thing. we got what else Nick is reading, what else I'm reading right there on the reviews tab. Plus, even products from our Amazon store. We've got stuff that we're going to feature. You want to pre-order the Deadpool movie, you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com and do it right from our website. Exactly. And with that, I leave you with the same thing I do every week, nerds. Brave, safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.